Today on Pop Talk. We forget that 13.6 million children in the U.S. have a special health care need. It's actually about one in every four households has a child with at least one special health care need. Um, that equates to almost 19% of the children in the U.S. Pop Talk is a fact and science based podcast dealing with important health topics, and our focus is to educate, entertain, and inform you on a variety of health issues. And now, your host, Dr. Shane Fernando, Dr. Amy Raines Melancoff, Dr. Sam Selby, and Devana Narang. Welcome back to Pop Talk. I'm Dr. Shane Fernando, a pediatric epidemiologist here at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Today, we're going to be discussing a very interesting topic on special needs. I am joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Amy Raines-Milenkov and Dr. Sam Selby. Hi, I'm Amy Raines-Milenkov. I'm in the Department of Pediatrics and Women's Health, where I'm an assistant professor. Yes, and I'm Dr. Sam Selby. I work at Cook Children's in the Emergency Department, and I'm also here on staff in the Pediatric and Women's Department at uh, TCOM. And today we're joined by Dr. Kimberly Folda from the Family Medicine Department. Do you mind going ahead and introducing yourself, Dr. Folda? Absolutely. Thank you all. My name is Kim Folda, and I'm an associate professor here at the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. My background is public health and population health. I co-teach that as well as work with our residents. And so I'm very excited to talk with you today about this topic. Children with special health care needs is a personal interest of mine. I've done research in the area, including my dissertation work, but I also have a personal connection with having an autistic older brother. And I'm a coach for Special Olympics. So thank you for having me here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I think something that we should probably do before we just dive right into this very interesting topic is defining it. I think a, a lot of our community, our audience, may not necessarily understand what special needs is. Could you elaborate for us? Absolutely. According to the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, uh, special needs is defined as children who need care above or beyond children that are average of their age. That could be anything from a physical condition. It could be a mental health condition. Some of the most common things that we think of would be asthma, allergies, ADHD, or behavior or conduct issues. could be any combination of the above. Hmm. So I work in the pediatric emergency room, and, you know, obviously I see only children all the time, but in adult uh, emergency rooms, a child is a scary thing in and of themselves, but you put a child in the emergency room with special needs, and they are terrified. Can you kind of tell me why uh, practitioners and uh, are more kind of tense around uh, having a child in the emergency room that is has special needs? I feel like it's not as common for some of the adult providers to focus on those individuals. And so because of that, we've seen a lot of differences in the way our pediatricians versus our adult care providers and their comfort level in working or treating a child with special health care needs. We forget that 13.6 million children in the U.S. have a special health care need. It's actually about one in every four households mm. has oh, a child a with at least one special health care need. Um, that equates to almost 19% of the children in the U.S. Wow. And so I feel like the training and the emphasis and our children with special needs are living longer and living into adulthood. And so that's where we have that transition between the pediatricians who are specialized and focused in that area, and now our adult providers are seeing more of that, um, those conditions. And then our pediatricians are also having to let go of them at an age because they're used to treating them, but now they're seeing more adult conditions in that age as well, in that yeah. population. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. We have, uh, it's not quite a problem, but I do see a lot of children that are not children anymore 
just they're coming to the pediatric hospitals because that's where their specialists were. And even in their 20s, we're still having trouble transitioning them. So I see this becoming a bigger and bigger um, thing that we need to address as a society and as um, practitioners because these children, as you're mentioning, are living longer, fortunately. Absolutely. And I feel like it's making that choice difficult for the parents as well. It's something they're comfort, they're used to, they have that provider, they trust them. And then how do you make that transition? Unfortunately, less than half of our children with special health care needs actually have a medical home. And so they don't have the access to that warm, central, care-centered place where they're receiving their care and then receive that warm handoff to those adult providers. And so you are absolutely correct. We are seeing an issue with that in this population. Dr. Folda, why is that? Why is the lack of a medical home such a problem? Uh, there are a lot of other things that you have to think of socio-demographically with these children. One is transportation to get somewhere. Two is who is going to provide that care. Three would be thinking of the fact that most of them are considered, about 40% of them are considered underinsured, so maybe not having continuous insurance throughout the year. And then there's a lot of factors that go into, so we see them a lot of times with single parents having children with special health care needs. It's more common, um, whether that be because they were born to a single parent or whether that be because actually having the special need put such a strain on the family that it ended up in a divorce. Um, so because of that, I think it's just the accessing and the ability to access. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting because we have electronic medical records, and that's was part of the point of having these systems is that they can all be talking with each other and providers in different mm -hmm. areas can access those records. And so you would hope that that would expand the accessibility to what the specialists were saying uh, and so that everybody was on that same page. But I agree with you. Having one person as the quarterback that's kind of assimilating all the information and getting the patients and families in the right spot is immensely important and keeps them out of the emergency department, uh, hopefully. So unfortunately, if you think about a single parent who maybe doesn't have uh, a super high education level within the medical field, trying to navigate the system of using five to 10 different specialists for their child without having that one central location, it's very difficult to manage. And so that leaves a lot of our parents struggling with even being able to access. And then if you look at some of those socioeconomic factors and then you say, okay, well, I need you to attend your doctor's appointment. One, it might be a struggle to get that child to the doctor's appointment, especially if they're what we call a high-intensity um, case so that they have a lot of severe conditions and maybe it's not easy to transport them. And then you look at factors like we don't, uh, what if I miss work? If I miss work, I can't do that. Or maybe I'm the only person that's able to take care of this child and I have three other kids in the household as well. There's a lot of factors like that that I think that we forget to take those social determinants of health into account. Uh, when we're talking about providing care and giving access to them. I can tell you there were some special programs, actually, if you read about it, where um, they have a, pro a, a program where the medical plan is sent home with the parent, and then it's actually put in the freezer, for example, and then the EMS are notified that if a child is on your list and you have a call to their home, you go straight to the freezer and you can pull up their medical plan and look at it, and then you can see their medication and what's coming up next. Mm. So there are different well, programs that have been piloted like that that are very um, helpful uh, for these populations. Mm. Yeah, that was going to be my question. This is a critical gap, and who's working on the, these issues? 
I don't know if I can answer <laughs> that completely because of the fact that there should be more people working on it. And unfortunately, yeah. I think these children are just forgotten in yeah. a sense. You know, we don't think of that as being a need. Um, there are a lot of needs that are unfortunately just left through the cracks with this population. And I've seen uh, they're trying to get more research and funding out there for these vulnerable children um, through the AAP and uh, EMSC in particular, uh, trying to re recognizing that these children have been kind of left behind and they are vulnerable and um, trying to get them the research and the funding to kind of mm -hmm. catch them up, obviously. Now, so these children uh, are at risk not only because of the um, disability that they have, either physically or, um, uh, I guess, mentally, uh, but what other risks are these children uh, at being with their conditions, such as abuse or um, yeah, other things like that? They're really at risk for entering into the juvenile system, for example, if it's mm. a behavioral issue. Um, what we found in some of our other research is those with IDD or other um, intellectual developmental disabilities with substance use, for example, they um, may not be as likely to use a substance, but once they do, they're more likely to have a problem or a disorder with it. Hmm. So there are other risk factors. Nobody ever talks about sexual or reproductive health with this population either. Hmm. So we have athletes that I've worked with in Special Olympics who have children, and then their children also have special needs, and then who takes care of them? Hmm. Right. So there's a lot of, the, yes, the abuse um, is also very high, especially if you look at sexual abuse among these children. Yeah, unfortunately, I've seen uh, the cases are quite a bit higher in this population than just your average um, uh, well child. So that is a very unfortunate uh, part of this population. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit on some of the things that are uh, some tools or some approaches that healthcare providers can take, or maybe even the regular co community on how to help or embrace and engage with this community, this population? I would say one of the things would be identifying resources yeah. and uh, providing that to our parents. Um, mm. Just a personal story um, coaching with Special Olympics, walking the track with one of the parents who says, My child just graduated high school. What do we do? I don't know where we go next. So it's not just the clinical side of it. It's also that does he go to work? Where does he live? Does he stay Great at home questions. with me? Yeah. How do we transition him to being able to take care of himself? Those were a lot of other issues. And so providing those resources and where can we refer those parents to go to um, to talk about those things? That's become one of the big challenges that I've noticed um, with our parents. Just speaking from your personal experience, can you share how that worked with your brother? So my brother lives at home, so he, he has been asked over throughout the years, would you choose to live at home or would you choose to live in a group setting? And he has always chosen home. Uh, he is very high functioning, but he does have medical conditions, so outside of his autism. So what I can say is that when we work with him with a provider, we ensure that the provider talks directly to him. Oh, that's great. So we're in the room, we listen, he might look at us and say, kind of like, how do I answer that? But we try to let him answer as much as he can as possible. We do have sessions with him where we say, do you know what your medical condition is? Do you know why you have to eat a certain diet? Do you know why you have to do this? And make sure that he can tell us all of that. Because if something happens to his caregivers, he would be the person that's making those decisions or having to navigate that system for himself. Unfortunately, what we see is a lot of times the providers will talk away from the person who has special needs, mm. and they will talk to the parent or the caregiver and only to them. 
while you can't ignore them because they know more about that person than you as a provider will know. As an example, when my brother is at track practice, when he feels bad or he's having a hard time breathing, he's not going to come tell me. But what he does is he bends down and he ties his shoes. That's my cue to know, yeah, he probably needs to sit out for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So those providers, I mean, those caregivers are going to know that. They're going to know those cues for that child or that adult. However, that doesn't mean you can't exclude that child or that adult. I feel like they need to be a partner in their decision making. We have other athletes we work with who are diabetics, for example. They may not understand completely what that means, but they know they need to take a shot before they eat for example. So they're able to remind that and be engaged in that process. So I feel like involving them more in their care versus talking around them is a big issue that we need to tackle as a, as a community. And what are you seeing in the caregivers themselves? I mean, I imagine this is obviously stressful on so many different levels emotionally because you have a child with these special needs, but also physically because sometimes you're having to lift these children if they are not mobile. Um, but what other things are you seeing uh, with the parents that are coming to you? It can also be socioeconomically. Mm. Um, mm. Financially burdensome. Financially yeah. burdensome yeah. Yeah. for Not them. Not going to work or all the, the cost of appointments. They can't go things. to work. They have to continually take care of their child. They have to provide um, somebody to take care of their child. They have to take off work to take them to school or, or to work. Or how does that work? Who, t- who provides that day-to-day care? Mm-hmm. I've worked with other um, athlete, another athlete where his mother has talked with me about Sometimes he gets violent. It's not meant to be. He's not meant to uh, or trying to hurt her, but she has, she's getting older. He's big. How do I restrain him? Mm. You know, he came at her, so we talked about different ways of just moving out of the way mm. or how to, like, redirect the person versus, you know, trying to physically um, defend yourself. So those are issues that we don't think about that they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Mm. What are respite programs like? I mean, is this something that's readily available for parents to find, or are they difficult? It's not that easy to find. One of my projects that I did is I looked at a national database to figure out, it's a national survey, what are some of the things that were lacking, access to care, and how common is it, and how, or rather how common is it to say we don't have access to these services. Respite care was one of the things that I looked at, and very few parents self-reported that they have access to respite care. It was one of the lowest. I will also point out that of the nine services that we looked at in our research, they were all lowest in the south and the west of Mm. the United States. They were all much better in the north and northeast to have access to care. Mm. We think that's quite a bit to do with the political environment and access to programs and the expansion of Medicaid. Mm. Does this, um, do do special needs affect different populations in a disparate way or is it pretty much uniform across the board? It's not uniform. So we will see in certain minority populations that we'll see higher rates of special needs. We also see it again among single parent households. We'll see it more commonly in the lower socioeconomic status. Again, which came first, single Mm -hmm. or special needs, you know, financially disadvantaged or special needs. We also see some gender differences and we see an age disparity. So if you think about it, a lot of times, especially with the borderline cases, we're not seeing those needs come out until they hit the benchmarks of where other children are. Yeah. So you think of entering school, entering kindergarten, you think of entering the next level, the next level of those mil- developmental milestones. If they're not reaching them, that's where we start to see some of those delays. So we see our parents reporting a more common unmet need among the older kids or also reporting a higher rate of special needs among older children. 
Where do you like if if a parent has uh, a child that they they love they they're uh, completely engaged with them and they start to suspect something is a little bit different. Um, where where do they go? What do they do? I mean, I think Dr. Selby you can also elaborate a little bit on this as a clinician. But is there something? Uh, is there a point when you should maybe ask and get test test done? So pediatricians and family medicine physicians, anybody who's seeing that child as a primary care provider should be providing those developmental milestones mm-hmm. and checking them during their well visits. Yeah, your AS cubes, your ages and stages questionnaires at certain points. And then ho- hopefully you're listening to your parents as well and asking them some insightful questions. But it can be hard and can be missed, um, obviously, by some of these. In, in my own uh, household, you know, my daughter is dyslexic and her teachers, whenever we asked her, how is she coming along with reading, um, her teacher was like, she's great. She's really doing really well. Um, she's one of the top students in the class, but my daughter is so verbal, so uh, expressive, and she can you know, get clues from others around her and can kind of look at the picture on the page, but uh, when it came to reading the words themselves, she was having a lot of trouble that my wife and I were picking up at home, and it wasn't until we actually did that more formalized testing that we found out, yeah, she's pretty severely dyslexic. Uh, She's very, uh, her IQ is high and her uh, social skills are high, so she's compensating, but uh, she does need help in this reading. So it's important to pick up, uh, but it can be missed. Absolutely, and I was going to say teachers are another great resource because they should also be looking at the children and they can see how they are and how not only how they're interacting with other kids, but exactly how they're progressing in their schoolwork. And the schools do provide a pretty supportive system in to do some of those developmental type testings, whether it be for dyslexia or, or other issues or learning disabilities that they may be struggling with. But that's also an area where it can be missed because, one, we have such high t-shirt to student ratios um, and just low funding. And, um, you know, this last year with COVID, we didn't have kids in school. So how many kids during that year and a half mm-hmm. were actually missed uh, from just not being able to be interacting with their peers and their teachers on a daily basis? Oh, you are 100% correct. The stress load on the teachers has been insane over the past year. Um, I have a seven-year-old at home that apparently failed a vision screening in May at school, and I was never notified. Hmm. I just found out two days ago. Yeah. So, and, and the, it's just that they're so overburdened right now with COVID that it is really hard for them to keep up with everything. But in an ideal situation, they should be able to hopefully um, communicate those or at least pick up on those things. Hmm. You know, speaking of COVID, um, I, I kind of ask, how, how has the pandemic affected those with special needs? Do you have an idea or thoughts? So I can talk about the athletes that I work with with Special Olympics and then my brother, you know, in particular. Um, unfortunately, it meant that we closed down Special Olympics for quite a while, and that's something that they all very much look forward to. They want to be, when I say they, someone, the athletes that we work with, they just want to be accepted and go have fun and socialize with their friends just like everybody else does, right? And that's their outlet. To go to Special Olympics, they get to go, they get to perform, they get to do sports, they get to be energetic. Um, then we had to take that away from them. So unfortunately, when you have somebody, especially somebody with autism, for example, that they're used to a routine. That routine is I get up at this time, I do this, I go here, I look forward to this, and then I go home. And when you take that routine away from them, it unfortunately will disrupt their entire behavior and their entire pattern. Mm. So we did have it taken away for a while. And then when it went back, um, we had to adopt certain rules. So we had training videos that were put out. Here's how we know we're six feet apart. If you put your arms apart and you can't touch each other's hands, then you know you're far enough apart, right? 
Then it was taken away again. Now it's back in. So it's been a little bit of a back and forth. But to be honest, we're they're just happy to get out there and play right now. Mm-hmm. They don't really care if they win. The group that I work with in Special Olympics, they are some of the most inspiring individuals that you'll ever meet. If you've never been to a Special Olympics tournament, you should really go. They don't care about race. They don't care about religion. They don't care about gender. They don't care about disability. They just want to hug. <laughs> they want to walk up. They want to talk to you. They want to be your friend, and they want to hug you. Yeah. Uh, we can't hug right now, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I, it was disruptive to them, and I would have athletes emailing me, hey, Coach Kim, do you think we're going to do softball this year? Or do you think we're going to do this? Or when are we going to be back to this? And some of them will just message because there's a thunderstorm coming and I'm really scared. So it really just depends on the athlete. But a lot of them, they're just really ready to be engaged again. They feel that isolation just as much or worse than anybody else. And, you know, we had daycares closed, schools closed, and I'm sure there were uh, facilities that were taking care of some of these kids that weren't either at capacity or even having kids um, in there at all because of just – their COVID exposures, et cetera. So I can share experiences with one of our families. Um, they have a daughter who's an adult, and she lives in a group home. They have her in a group home because they want her to be a little more independent. And what's going to happen to her if they were to pass? Who's going to take care of her? So she lives in a group home setting, right? But what it came down to was with COVID, either you come get her or you don't see her for the next year. Oh, wow is what they were told. Mm-hmm. So they made the choice to go get her and bring her home so they could have her in her home in their home rather than not be able to see her for the next year. So that's also how COVID has affected them wow. being in certain settings, just like a nursing home or any in-living facility in the sense that we don't want any outsiders coming in. Um, so yes, they mm-hmm. made the choice. I'm going to take her home and she's going to stay with me until the pandemic is over. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult for families. Absolutely. So, Kim, something I've always wondered, I've had um, Dr. Folda come into my class several times and talk about children with special needs. And you can't, of course, this is a podcast you can't see, but when she talks about children with special needs, she has um, a spark about her. And um, it's really really nice to see. It's really lovely. And I'm wondering, um, we can imagine what Special Olympics does for the athletes, but what about the volunteers? Because it's a volunteer-run organization what does it do for you when you're out there with this with the athletes well it's extremely rewarding I think it's one of the best ways to give back because when you can see that you put a smile on their face and it makes them happy then that's what matters and again like I said nobody there cares about who you are or what you look like or what you do or anything about you you know you might be different they don't care they just it's just an all accepting environment where you can see the purest kind of joy mm-hmm. in my opinion. So I really think that it helps the volunteers a lot. Most of our volunteers do have a family member or someone a loved one that has a special need that they're there for, but we do also have other volunteers that that's just something they choose to give their time to because uh, it's fun. I mean you enjoy it and you get it's a really big sense of like feeling of giving back and it's a reward. Mm-hmm. I sense that. It sounds like a big community-building event, uh, one, to support the athletes, but maybe even more importantly to support the caregivers, too, to say there's somebody out here that uh, also is, knows my st- type of situation and you know is here to support my kid and support me as well. Oh, absolutely. We're definitely like a family. Mm. We had one athlete that lost his mother to COVID this year. Mm. Actually, we had two athletes that lost their mother to COVID this year. 
Um, one of them is not one that participates in our particular sports, but we're still a community and supported him through his family's battle with COVID. One of our others that lost his mother, he's on all of our teams. And it was something that was very difficult and very challenging for him. One of our other parents is a minister. Mm. So when we came back to the first practice where he and his dad were back, the minister got together and prayed. Mm. We had a big group prayer for him and his family to support them. And so just to see them as something they can come back to and feel comfortable, and, and that included his dad, his, you know, coming back. He was able to talk to us about the loss of his wife, whom he had been married to since he was a, a, a teenager, mm. and that he was able to come back and say, okay, you know, I'm comfortable being around you all. I want to share. I want to be here. Okay. And so you're correct. You know, my own story from the emergency department, um, my brother actually has a special needs child with Angelman syndrome, and I had a patient come in with Angelman's, and uh, I was just kind of chit-chatting with the family and said, you know, my uh, little nephew has Angelman's as well. And you could just see them light up. And he said, really? Like, where do they live? Like, we'd love to meet them. Because just having somebody that knows, you know, what shoes you've been walking in, where that stone is, and kind of has felt your same pain, I think really means a whole lot to you. Um, so just seeing the way that they were yearning for that community, um, I wish I could get them plugged into something like this because I'm sure it would just help them a lot in their situation as well. So speaking of that, actually, how does somebody get involved in Special Olympics? As a volunteer or an athlete? Both. So as an athlete, you have to be eight years or older. Our particular team that we use, um, they it's mostly adults or upper teenage because most of the eight-year-olds, for example, are involved through their school system. So we get most of the people that age out of the school systems that come into our group. So a place for you to continue participating after you've graduated high school. Um, it's just a simple process of trying to sign up. You do have to have an intellectual disability to be a part of Special Olympics. It cannot be just a physical disability. So there is that component. To be a volunteer, you have to sign up. There's a Class A volunteer that you can sign up on Special Olympics Texas. There's training that you have to go through. One is basically just how to be a volunteer. The other part of that is COVID right now because we have new. The other would be ways to look out for sexual and physical abuse among the children that you're working out, uh, working with. And then once you do that, they do a background check on you. And then after your background check, you're good for three years until you have to come back and recertify. As a coach, there's skills trainings that you will go to for that specific sport. So as a coach for softball, I had to go attend a half-day clinic on softball training and take a test. Hmm. Back when I did it, you also had to have so many hours that you were observed um, by another coach. And I'm not sure. I think they may have waived that now. Uh, but same thing when I did flag football and some of the other sports. is You go, you take a training, you learn from somebody, and then you have to go have practice hours with them. So is there, and you mentioned one of the requirements for Special Olympics was physical disability, or no, not a physical disability only, but uh, it has to have intellectual disability. Are there organizations for those with just physical disabilities? Not really, other than the Paralympics. Mm -hmm. The Paralympics is where you would see more people going with just basically a physical disability versus an intellectual disability. Um, I can't think of any other organizations off the top of my head that would be local, for example, for that. And these are usually spread out in kind of major cities where you would find Special Olympics. And do you all kind of all fall under one big umbrella of Special Olympics organization? 
I think several states are done differently, but through Texas, we have a state organization, and then we have districts or regional, really they're called area level. So we fall under area 11, which is greater Fort Worth. Area 10 is greater Dallas. So it includes all of the surrounding communities within that. So I'm not sure if every single place falls within an area, like some of the rural or remote areas of Texas, but most areas are going to fall within um, an area district. Within that area, you'll have several different teams. Hmm. So like we have our team, but then maybe Fort Worth ISD has their team, Arlington ISD has their team, and then there's others. There's another Fort Worth team that's more for adults. I think they're called the Fort Worth Titans. We're called the Special Friends. And so Special Friends is typically more in the HEB area, the Hershey-Lewis Bedford area, though we go from Fort Worth and other people come from other areas. So really you have your small area unit underneath your area, underneath the state. Gotcha. Thanks for sharing that with us. That's a really cool uh, thing that you're involved in. Can I shift the conversation a little bit to your research? What kind of active research are you engaged in currently? A lot of our research is access to care. Uh, it doesn't always have a, sp a focus specifically on special needs right now, um, but we have done a lot in the past with how do we, what are the differences or factors that predict having an unmet need for mental health care, uh, pri primary care, specialty care, or access to a medical home. We've done a lot of work at looking at geographic differences in those access to care done some work in looking at transition to care and differences between pediatric and lifespan types, so more um, family medicine providers, and how they um, address that access or that transition. So really, it's kind of all over the place, but a lot of our stuff deals with access to care. Now, we have done some research with looking at children who are 10 to 14 years of age and uh, sociodemographic, environmental factors that might be associated with being high risk for type 2 diabetes as well. Mm -hmm. So that being more if taking off the IDD part and going more into the um, more into the physical clinical um, conditions. One of my current projects that I'm just ending, it doesn't deal with children, but it's looking at substance use disorder among individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Okay. So looking at how are we treating them, what are some of the factors that should be considered, how common is it, what are some of the comorbid mental health conditions, what substances are they abusing, um, and then what are some of the barriers they're, they're um, encountering just to even access to care. Could you share some of the results from those studies with us? So from the IDD and SUD, so the Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and the Substance Use Disorder one that we're doing right now, uh, we're in the process of putting all of our information together, and we've done quite a few interviews with individuals who work um, at licensed facilities to treat substance use disorder, and we've done surveys, and then um, we've also done some analysis of data from the DFW Hospital Council Foundation. What we're finding is an individual approach to care is mu very much needed. Um, you cannot do a one-size-fits-all with somebody with IDD. Most of the providers are saying that it should be a let's meet them where they're at type approach. So maybe the end goal isn't for them to be completely free of using substances. How do we get them to function in society, hold a job? Maybe it's reducing the amount of the substance that they're using. Those are also some of the goals that we'll be working towards with those types of um, disabilities. It's interesting because one of the people that we interviewed actually is a peer counselor for those with substance use disorder and actually has IDD himself. Mm. So hearing his perspective, we want a place where we're welcomed, where we feel safe, and we don't feel like somebody's gonna make fun of us if we're in a group setting yeah. or call us out for being different, mm. right? 
Um, so we've heard a lot of that. We're also finding that those with severe intellectual and developmental disabilities are left in the cracks. There's nowhere to send them. Mm. It's most of the treatment programs are for borderline cases of IDD. Now, MHMR might be your only place for somebody who has a severe case of IDD to um, go into. Surprisingly, insurance is not the big determining factor because most of these programs are public funded and don't even take insurance in quite a few of them. But if we think about the rural and remote areas of Texas, you know, um, access is an issue. Mm. We do have one person we interviewed um, who lost a son to substance use. And so that was an interesting perspective to hear from her as well, um, to hear, you know, kind of her experiences and what we think we should have done earlier and how we should have identified that. Providers are telling us that they are using as early as 12. And so when they start using, it becomes an issue. And what we found in the literature was alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine. But what we're finding here in Texas would be alcohol, marijuana, and meth. So say meth is pretty high, I would imagine. Yes, meth is one of the top three. On your patient population, are you including psychiatric disorders as well in this? Or is it mainly just um, uh, cognitive delays and physical uh, um, yeah, delays. For this particular study, we looked at IDD specifically in the sense of thinking about somebody that was born with it. So somebody okay. that was born with a delay or developmental issue, and usually that equates to a lower IQ. Okay. So not as many people that have been identified as bipolar and, and having schizophrenia and things like that. Um, Correct. Though we did ask what are the common comorbid psychiatric conditions that they're seeing, um, in those with IDD and substance use disorder, and mm -hmm. schizophrenia was one of the top ones that kept coming up. Mm, interesting. Now, you mentioned earlier that drug um, use was not necessarily higher in patients with uh, delays, but um, uh, you're, whenever they were exposed to drugs, they were more likely to kind of stay in that environment. Absolutely. And so we're not really sure um, why with the stuff that we asked specifically here. I think the next step would be to talk with those with IDD who have experienced substance use disorder to kind of hear from them. What we read in the literature is that really there's a lot of risk factors like the need to fit in, um, you know, social pressures and factors from their environment. They're under a lot of pressure, maybe more pressure depending on where they live. Um, we did hear from some people we interviewed that group homes, oftentimes if somebody's using in the group home, you might treat them, you send them back to the group home, they're going right back to using it mm -hmm. if somebody else there does. Um, family environment, those are a lot of the things that we were finding in the literature as being associated with more likely to become an issue with substances. That's incredible. So where do they actually get these substances? Anywhere anybody else does. Friends, school, unfortunately, it's everywhere. It can be surprising where uh, in the emergency department, I had a 18-month-old with fentanyl the other day. Mm -hmm. Of course, he got that just at home, but you know, I, I agree with you. If it's in the home, kids are going to not only see it, but be more likely to get exposed to it either accidentally or you know, just get involved in it uh, on their own accord. That's very troubling. I'm sorry. I'm just giving a minute to process that. <laughs> it's a lot to process. Yeah. It really is. And again, nobody talks about it. Nobody thinks about, you know, how do we treat somebody with IDD? Do you put them in a group setting? Or, or can they 
can they function in a group setting completely, especially if they have a severe IDD? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because we interviewed somebody who says he works with the homeless population, and he says, but I don't really deal with IDD. I'm like, oh, but if you're only working with the homeless population, you are dealing with IDD. You just don't realize it. And another thing that I will say our providers talked about quite often is if somebody presents to their facility and they're high on a substance, how do you know if the way they're acting is because of the substance or because they have IDD? Mm -hmm. So how do you know that? You don't know in the beginning which it is, right? Until maybe you detox, until that person detoxes and then you're able to start assessing. But even then, those facilities are not licensed to diagnose IDD. Mm. So they're not even really screening for it. They either have to send them somewhere else to screen or they just have to make assumptions about what they might have unless they have a self-reported diagnosis or have access to a medical record. So Dr. Fulton, what I'm curious about is how does the United States fare as far as uh, systems in place and the, the uh, rights of children with special needs and adults with special needs compared to other countries. I've had the opportunity to travel to different countries, and um, I'm thinking of a few places where it's horrible, horrible situations for children and and adults as well. And I'm just wondering, is there places that really have it together? Um, how, How does it compare? How do we compare? Unfortunately, I don't know the statistics or the policies to be able to say that. What I can say is that, yes, there are certain countries um, that where it's considered a stigma. Mm. Um, it's considered taboo mm-hmm. to have somebody with special needs, and a lot of times they're um, neglected or given up by their family um, because, you know, that's some, it's considered a bad sign. Mm-hmm. Right? So, unfortunately, that does exist in other countries. Now, how we compare to all other countries or in the standards or which ones are doing best – I don't have that background mm. to be able to answer that, mm-hmm. but it's a really good question. Yeah. I know we've come a long way here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of uh, information lately about how to inclusion. I don't know if mm-hmm. you've seen a lot of the mm-hmm. inclusion campaigns that have happened a lot lately where just because somebody's different doesn't mean they need to be excluded or put mm-hmm. off in the corner and doing their own thing. Yeah. The more you include them, um, the more you not only teach them how to function in society, but the more you teach other people how to function yeah. with them in society. And exactly. I think that's the reciprocal important mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I can imagine one of the nightmares of a caregiver would, as you mentioned earlier, to be imagining what's going to happen to my child after I pass. Can you tell us some of the statistics on what is the rate of homelessness in uh, this patient population? I don't know the rate of homelessness. I can tell you that a lot of them at that point go into um, the system, which then puts them in a home. Mm. And so a lot of time that's where they end up. Now, that might be choice by the parents because they want them to become some sort of independent. But unfortunately, a group home is not a group home is not a group home. Right. You know, you can have some of the really nice ones that are very expensive, yeah. and they provide a lot of access and a lot of care, and then you have the other ones that maybe aren't so mm-hmm. great, and they're at higher risk for some of those abuses that we talked about earlier. Um, so I don't know the sense of homelessness or how common it is with somebody with special needs, um, but oftentimes they do either end up in the system, whether that be in a group home, or do end up homeless as an adult if they don't have a caregiver for them, or especially if they don't have insurance. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about um, these after these this contingency plan that a lot of caregivers have to make. What are some recommendations that at least like you need to talk about this? You need to talk about this with 
your child, as well as those who support you in your family or in your uh, neighborhood, whoever it may be, what are things that you would recommend they start talking about? I just say you have to have a plan. Mm. That's the biggest thing. You have to have a plan. And yes, you have to be willing to have that conversation. The conversation is hard. And I think a lot of families neglect that conversation because it is hard. Mm. Or they say, um, I don't have anything in place, so I'm just not going to worry about it right now. Or I'm not going to die anytime soon, so I'll worry about that later. But you never know when it's going to be your time. Let's, let's face it. Anything could happen at any time. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a plan, whether that be, yes, they will go into a facility, whether that be, yes, a family member will take over and take over that care, which often mm-hmm. is the case, especially if there's a sibling. Um, I have – there. Are, some of the universities are – have these amazing programs where they teach people to be independent and live independently. Mm-hmm. One of our uh, coaches, just her son, just went into a program where he's going to live and go to school uh, for the next couple of years, and he will be living there independently like a college student. That's cool. And so for that program, they will teach him, you have to get up in the morning on your own. This They have cooking classes for them. This is how you pay your bills. This mm-hmm. is how you take care of this. So teaching them to be a little bit more responsible for that day-to-day um, living versus us kind of babying them, mm-hmm. which is what we do a lot. Oftentimes we hold people back because we want to do everything for them and take care of everything for them, and that's not always in their best interest. Yeah. Training them to take care of themselves, having a plan of where they're going to go. If something were to happen to you, again, whether that be a facility or a family member or a caregiver or however that may be, um, but there just needs to be a plan and to work with that individual so that they understand that plan and they're understanding as much as they can to take care of themselves. Is there any financial plans available out there, government-supported funds? I mean, if the if the family is in the lower income brackets and if they are single parents, they're already stru- uh, struggling financially, how would they be able to make a contingency plan without the funds to back that up? There are some programs available, but they are extremely limited. Hmm. Those with um, uh, special needs may qualify for uh, Medicaid. And so getting on Medicaid would be one of the biggest ways that you could provide continuity for their health care, as well as may provide access to a home. So sometimes that may provide um, the money needed to live in a facility. But outside of that, there's not really a whole lot um, that's available. Maybe getting connected through MHMR um, so that there's an, a, a possibility to um, work with them to find out what programs may be especially new. Hmm. Could you explain what MHMR is to those oh, who may not know? M- it's mental health, mental retardation. And so it's a government-funded facility that will um, assist individuals with special needs. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned having that plan, and some of that really needs to be formalized by getting powers of attorney and, you know, trusts and things set up outside the scope of what I know, but you're going to probably have to get a lawyer sometimes to uh, form some of these things. Um, what one resource would you find very helpful for your for our community members either to learn more about um, these children and these caregivers and also for caregivers to go to in general just to learn what options are out there um, and is available to them? Do you have anything that you could kind of point them towards? So I would say if you're a caregiver, MHMR is going to be your best resource because they will typically have access to everything that's going on, not only in your community, but across the state. If you're a parent, uh, same thing. 
Um, but if you're somebody that just wants to volunteer, then I would say go in more towards like the Special Olympics or somewhere where you can get actively involved in the volunteering side of it. Um, but as a caregiver or maybe an adult with a special need that you don't have a caregiver, um, I would say going to the MHMR route. If it's more of a m mental or intellectual disability, if it's a physical disability, um, then you may have uh, other options, you know, going through your primary care provider and social work system through your primary care office. Hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fulda. Can I ask for some takeaways that you'd want the audience to really stick in their mind? Just a couple of things that you might think of. I would say just emphasizing that it's very common. Um, you're, you may even work or go to school with or be actively engaged with somebody who has a disability and you don't even know it. Um, just to be sure that you keep your eyes open, you keep your heart open, and then you accept everybody and let's just support each other as a community. I mean, I feel like that's the best way to work through um, any kind of situation, and that includes just inclusion. Awesome. Thank well, you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time talking with us today. I know I learned a lot about this community, and I'm anxious to get more involved to support them. Um, and kind of learn what I can to help my community members as well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this very interesting episode. I know that I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. We look forward to have you join us in our next episode. As always, follow us on at PopTalkUNTHSC on Instagram or at PopTalkUNTHSC on Facebook. If you have a question, just shoot us an email or direct message, and we'll be sure to respond. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to having you join us on our next episode. Pop Talk is a production of the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine and is produced at the UNT Health Science Center in Fort Worth. To learn more, please visit our website at unthsc.edu.